Good morning. It is a privilege to be here with you. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. I do want to say as I begin that it's important that I give a word of thanks to Grace Bible Church and the elders here, uh, both for their generosity in putting on this conference and um, frankly, for um, the fact that they have the courage to put on this conference. John MacArthur commented during COVID that MDivs sadly don't always come with spines. Um, but in the case of the ministers here, clearly they did. Matthew 28, we'll begin reading in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look this morning at your word, as we consider what's being taught globally by a parachurch ministry, and as we compare that to the Word of God, we pray that you would guard our hearts from error, our mouths from error, that you would cause us to hear from the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, as he speaks through his Word and by the Spirit. We want to honor you above all else. We are compelled by a godly jealousy to defend the Word of God. We are commanded by your Word to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine, for that false doctrine harms your church, makes it sick, and dishonors your name. We pray that you would help us as we do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. As I begin, I want to make you aware that the influencers locally and globally believe that we are misrepresenting them, as Pastor Steve said, persecuting them, and generally being a tool of the devil to divide Christ's church. As their founder wrote in a newsletter this week about us, Their evil intentions are obvious, and so many people are seeing who they are and what drives them, and it is not Jesus. In the view of the founder, we have been captured by evil, and we are not driven by our love for Christ. The local board has sent out more than one communication stating that they are in a spiritual battle and suffering trials as a result of our critique. Now, while we have critiqued their written materials, they have openly stated that we are persecuting them, engaging them in a spiritual battle, 
And they have called us evil men who in their words or the words of their founder are pawns in the efforts of evil and who may not be part of God's family. Based on reading his materials, I'm not surprised he sees our critique of the journey in this way. And I'll show you why in a moment. But here's a question. Are the stakes really that high? Could we be evil men who are pawns in the efforts of evil and not actually a part of God's family? Well, this is ultimately about sound doctrine and false doctrine. We are told by Paul that false doctrine is taught as a result of men being captured by Satan to do his will. So I don't think the founder of the influencers is being terribly dramatic to argue that. His stuff about the fact that he knows what it's like to be Israel being, having their babies' heads cut off by Hamas is dramatic. But, but that's not a dramatic claim, that this really is a question of, are these men representing Christ, or are we? Or are these men representing the devil, or are we? Therefore, the question is left to you. Who is on the side of the truth? Who is on the side of sound doctrine? Who has been captured by Satan to do his will? And who is a good servant of Christ Jesus, an approved worker, rightly handling the word of truth? And how do we discern, discern that in the first place? Well, we do so by, being, by comparing what is being taught to the Word of God. To that end, we are teaching these sessions. Influencers is a ministry whose stated vision is, and I quote, to transform lives through the journey. They clearly want disciples to be made, and they want those disciples to participate in some way in disciple-making. But here is what they state. We do not disciple. Rather, we take a person through a process of discovery and removal of hindrances that in turn allows the Holy Spirit to disciple them. For this reason, we view the journey to be a personal progression into intimacy with Jesus Christ. In their manual, they ask, what is true discipleship? And then they go on to state what they believe it is not. It is not evangelism, verse memorization, or a rigid schedule of daily devotion. Jesus might be surprised to hear that making disciples does not include evangelism. They do think those are good tools, but they are not true discipleship. So what is true discipleship? This is the closest they get to a definition. I quote, We have a strong conviction that the heart must change first before Christians can have a chance to function optimally, or Christian disciplines can have a chance to function optimally in that person. Because of this, we've made it the primary objective of the journey to move the participant to where heart change can really occur, an abiding, intimate relationship with Christ. See, once a person has this abiding, fruit-bearing, intimate relationship with Christ, he or she can now engage in the Great Commission. While the manual says that they do not make disciples, the Journey Leader's Guide on page 8 states that they do. Quote, the journey fulfills the Great Commission as it makes disciples and helps them to make other disciples. You can see the difficulty in reading their materials when one book says we don't make disciples and another says we in fact do. When we met with the local director and the board, which Steve and I did, we met with their board. They told us that their heart is to make disciples by helping people abide in Christ. So I 
I believe them. I believe them that their heart is to make disciples by helping people abide in Christ. I truly believe that is their earnest goal. So what is the journey, if you haven't read the materials? The journey is a nine-month process, usually with a group of 12 men. There are some women's groups now and some couples groups. And that that nine-month process is led by a guide. This guide facilitates the journey group. And he finds his authority to facilitate the journey group according to the leader's guide from Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which is about making disciples. To be clear, guides do not baptize. That's what the manual says. The leader's guide says. They do not baptize and guides do not teach. They are expressly told not to teach. Rather, they facilitate discussion and lead by experience. Page 16 of the leader's guide. Your goal as a guide is to make disciples who then go out and make disciples. Page 11 of the leader's guide. With that said, the influencers want to be clear that you do not make disciples. The Holy Spirit does. The manual, the journey manual. Rather, you're walking alongside men through a nine-month process as their guide. Now, from the 12 men, you hope to see three men become guides of groups. When that occurs, you are now a mentor, page 11 of the leader's guide. Your nine-month process consists of having the men read a series of books authored by the founder of the influencers, The Journey to the Inner Chamber, Orphan No More, The Prayer Cottage in the Secret Garden, Abide, and beyond the inner chamber. Now, to be sure, the group participants are encouraged to read biblical scriptures in each session. They are. And they're to employ, as they read them, the star method of biblical interpretation. This is from page 23 of the Journey Manual. STAR is an acronym, which means scripture read, thought conveyed, application made, and response given. The thought-conveyed part of their Bible study method has you fill in a blank, replying to this statement. You ready? This means to me. Ellipsis. You know what that is? Dot, dot, dot. Fill in the blank. The guide is not there to correct a faulty interpretation. Remember, the guide is not to teach. Rather, page 16 of the Leader's Guide, quote, A very important part of each session of the journey is hearing from the revelations discovered from the participants' time doing their assignments. Now, this process has a culminating activity they call the commencement, in which the journey's leader's guide instructs the men to go to a dimly lit room, preferably lit with candles, and sort of rehearse the upper room discourse between Jesus and the twelve apostles. The guide is to serve the Lord's Supper, wash the feet of the participants, bestow upon them a new Hebrew name. They have a website so you can choose the Hebrew names you want to bestow upon your disciples and give them gifts to mark this occasion. Maybe a bracelet that says man of God or a hat or something like that. That's in the leader's guide, pages 58 through 64. Now, I will tell you, when we met with the local group, they told us that they do not practice administering the Lord's Supper. Uh, at least not those who are involved with one of the megachurches here in town. Now, that's a change they've made to the process of the journey. <clears throat> it is oft repeated in their materials, and I think it's important that we note that the founder of the influencers says that he, quote, this is a quote, downloaded this process from God. Page 18 of the Leader's Guide. The Leader's Guide goes on to say this on page 73. 
The journey is a clear and focused message by Christ to come and abide in him. It is biblically based and is layered with scriptural foundations that build on top of each revelation it unpacks over the nine months. That is why it is a process and not a program. That is why God has revealed it as such. Jesus discipled his men for three years. They needed time with him to understand his heart and mission, and this required they needed to know him, really know him. For this reason, the journey process needs to be followed. Hear this? The process God revealed that he downloaded from God. This, the journey process needs to be followed and not expedited to get to the fruit-bearing phase we all want, or worse, to just check it off as another study completed. The journey has a rhythm and a flow. It syncs with the Holy Spirit who is present in it. It is a message from Scripture that is slowly transferred as the participants engage in the process. It must be followed as inspired, or it will not become a healthy organism that reproduces. So that's a summary of their claims about their process. And their process of the journey must be protected. Therefore, the journey's leader guide on page 75 and 76 says the following. Influencers is kingdom-minded regarding the journey. And we desire that all of God's family enter into the place the journey will take them. For this reason, we are eager to share it. But be on guard and know that it is the evil man's scheme to divide and divert eyes away from Christ's invitation to come closer to him. Modifications of the simple and pure process have prevented multiplication by diverting people away from intimacy with Jesus. It is not realized by most who modify it. That is not their intentions. They just think there's a better way. They could even have good hearts and intentions, but the damage is the same. This is where protecting the DNA of the journey becomes the primary mission of our global and regional boards. Now, that's why I'm not surprised that the founder of the influencers says that we're evil men because he precisely said in their leader's guide that the evil men would get you away from the journey. Now, I don't question the desire of the local influencers to see people become disciples and abide in Christ. I don't question their desire. I don't question their deep, um, godly desire to see people grow in Christ. But their approach, their approach, particularly the journey books, is misguided, unbiblical, and deeply troubling. We hope to get to why during these sessions. We're not going to cover every issue of concern. There's just not time. So in this session, I want to get into two ways in which their overall approach is fundamentally misguided. Two ways in this session. Um, we're going to get into more as we go along. And, and to do so, I want to briefly answer two questions. And I'm so thankful that Steve's church knew to buy a giant clock to put up in the back of the room. <laughs> My church is wishing for one of those every Sunday. So I want to briefly answer two questions. First, whose job is it to make disciples and help them grow in grace? Whose job is it to make disciples and help them grow in grace? Second, how are we commanded to make disciples? Do you hear that word? How are we commanded to make disciples? In other words, what I'm asking there is, what are the biblically given means to making disciples? 
So let's consider the first question. Whose job is it to make disciples and help them grow in grace? Again, I started with this passage. Look at Matthew 28, verse 16. I want you to notice the context. Jesus has died on the cross. Jesus has risen from the dead. And now Jesus tells the disciples to meet him on a mountain. I don't have time to get into all the biblical theology here, but you understand when the Lord meets you on a mountain, that's a big deal, right? Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. There's only 11 left because one of them, Judas Iscariot, has committed apostasy. Now I will come back to that in my session on John 15, because that's really important understanding what Jesus is saying in John 15. But look what he says. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, what was promised in Psalm 2? You guys remember this? What was promised in Psalm 2 that the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage. That has been fulfilled. What was promised in Daniel 7, 13? That the Son of Man comes the Ancient of Days and he's given all authority in heaven and earth over every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus is saying, that has been fulfilled. My mediatorial kingdom has come and I am on the throne of the mediatorial kingdom. Now he says this, go therefore, here's the command that comes with that. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Listen, Jesus commands the 11, the 11, to go and make disciples. Make disciples is the main imperatival verb. In other words, by imperatival, I mean it's the verb in the form of a command. You have three participles here. Go, baptize, and teach. I'll explain that to you in a minute. For now, let's keep in mind that Jesus, I just want to keep this in mind for now, Jesus is commanding the apostles to make disciples. You understand the you that he's talking to here is not the you in the pew. it's, It's the you standing in front of him, the 11. It is their job to make disciples and help them grow in grace. This is not the first time Jesus gave the apostles this kind of responsibility. I know you're already wondering, but what about the church? I'll get to that. I mean, I I started an organization as one of the co-founders that we literally train people to go and fulfill the Great Commission in all parts of the earth. So don't worry, I'm going to get to us. But Jesus is dealing here with the apostles, and we have to understand that foundationally. Matthew 16. Look at Matthew 16. Because he's spoken to the apostles this way before. Just after Peter, if you remember, confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he's commended for that, Jesus then says in verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I'm not going to deal with all of the, the sort of mess that Rome has made with that. But I just want you to understand what's being said here. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. As the representative of the apostles, as the representative of the apostles, Peter is being told that he's being given the keys of the kingdom. 
He represents them. We see that again and again in the Gospels. In fact, when Jesus rebukes Peter and Mark, after Peter says, no, Lord, you know, that, that thing you never say, no, Lord, right? You understand how those don't go together? After Peter does that, Jesus rebukes Peter. It's interesting because he turns away from Peter toward the rest of the disciples and rebukes Peter looking at them because Peter's just representing them. And as he represents them, Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what do keys do? Keys open and shut things. And he's saying, you're going to open and shut things. Without getting into all the grammar here, the point is the, the apostles will wield those keys to open the door to the kingdom. That's preaching the gospel. And to close the door to the kingdom. That's church discipline. And we see them do this very thing in the book of Acts. Led first by who? Peter. Who preaches at Pentecost in Jerusalem? Peter. Who preaches in Samaria? Peter. Who preaches among the Gentiles, the God-fearing Gentile first, Peter, Cornelius' household, remember this. He goes to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and he proclaims the gospel. As people are saved in Acts, we see this played out, as people are saved in Acts, they are baptized, and they're gathered into local bodies of believers. And they devote themselves to the doctrine or the teaching of the apostles, Acts 2.42 and following. Further, we see the apostles begin to divide the labor up of caring for a growing church. The church is growing too fast. They've got to divide labor, and so what do they do? The first thing we see them do is appoint and ordain the seven. Now, they do that through the common suffrage of the church. In other words, the church is asked to set apart seven men who will serve the Hellenistic or Greek-speaking widows. You all remember this in Acts 6. And then they ordain them. Further, they begin to appoint and ordain elders in every church that's planted, Acts 14, 23. Paul goes to every church, and he ordains elders there. The apostles lay the foundation for the church, and then the apostles pass the baton to the elders and deacons. That's what I'm getting at. We see that beginning already in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, don't we? As James, an elder, actually is the one to whose word they listen. And in Acts 20, 17 and following, as Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders. But we can see it explicitly stated in Ephesians. So look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And what I'm wanting you to grab hold of is that the apostles were given the Great Commission and they passed the baton to the church. Ephesians chapter 2 and and verse 19 We've had this glorious passage about the gospel in Ephesians 2, and then we're told this, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's speaking to the Gentiles who are in Christ. They've been grafted in with the Jews. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members. Now notice the language of the household of God. They are members of the household of God. Household of God is the church. That's clear all over the New Testament and they're members of it. So if you wonder, where do you guys get this funky idea of church members? How about from Ephesians 2.19? You are members of the church, right? Members of the household of God goes on, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the, apo- the apostles and the prophets, 
hand the baton to the church, Christ being the head of the church. And we received a clue that that baton would be passed in the Great Commission, didn't we? In other words, within the Great Commission, when Jesus addresses the 11, we have a clue there that there's going to be a passing of the baton. Why? Because Jesus says, and surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Guess what the apostles won't do? Live to the end of the age. The apostles were not going to live to the end of the age, so we know we're being pointed beyond them. Further, Christ is the head of the church, and he has given his church officers. People ask me that. It's a formal language, officers. That means they hold offices. That's all. That's all I'm getting at. Officers. Same book, Ephesians 4. Go to verse 11. Ephesians 4, sorry, verse 11. Speaking about the fact that Christ has given gifts of grace. Verse 11. And he, that's Jesus, at his ascension, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. The apostle and prophet are both offices that are extraordinary. They're not ordinary offices. They're foundational. Scholars argue over whether the evangelist is a, fa- is a foundational, extraordinary office or an ordinary office. I don't really want to parse that out today. Um, but there are ordinary offices upon which we all agree, that of pastors and teachers. Now, whether pastors and teachers, that phrase is epexegetical. What does that mean? Is it pastors who are teachers? There's some argument about that. I don't want to parse that out. Here's the point. The ordinary offices given to the church that everybody agrees on are pastors and teachers. They're assigned to particular local churches. This is why Paul can write his letters to the church of Ephesus. You notice that? To the church at Ephesus, or the saints who are in Ephesus, or to the church at Rome, or to the church at Thessalonica. And in all those letters, he can address the elders and deacons of those churches. Further, this is right why right after Paul speaks of the qualifications for church officers, elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3, he then goes on to say what he does in 1 Timothy 3.15. So look at 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. If I delay, he's wanting to come to them soon. This is, if you remember, Timothy has gone back to Ephesus to clean up the mess. We were just dealing with the church at Ephesus in the letter to the Ephesians. Apparently, they may not, they may have, they may have heeded Paul's warning about wolves coming up from within their own numbers that we see and, and still had the problem, or they may not have heeded the warning. I really don't know. The point is, some of the elders became wolves, and Timothy had to come and clean up the mess. And Paul's writing this letter, and he says, after he says, here's what a godly elder and a godly deacon look like, he goes on and says this, I'd like to come, but verse 15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Remember that language in Ephesians 2 which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is the household of God. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And Paul tells us what that truth is in 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. He's talking about his resurrection from the dead. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. In other words, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, and the truth is the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think of the gospel like a a diamond in a wedding ring. Think of it like that. Um, I think I got this illustration from Mark Dever, but I'm I'm not sure. 
I'm ripping off somebody. Think about it like a diamond in a wedding ring, right? What does the diamond do in the wedding ring? That is the feature, isn't it? Everybody wants to look at the diamond. The gospel is the diamond. It's the thing we want to show to the world and the thing we want to protect. The prongs, the setting that holds that diamond is not what people admire. Nobody comes up and goes, those are beautiful prongs, (laughs) right? What do the prongs or the setting of the ring do? They hold the diamond out for the world to see and they protect the diamond from being lost. And what does the church, if you will, as the setting do? We hold the gospel of Jesus Christ up for the world to see and we protect the gospel from being lost. Christ's church, especially through our officers, because notice this comes right after elders and deacons, is to make disciples. So whose job is it to make disciples? The church, particularly, though not exclusively, through her officers. My point is that it is not the job of a parachurch ministry to make disciples. This calling has been given to the church, and the church is visible and local. It has elders and deacons. The church has members of the body. The church has discipline. The church baptizes people and serves them the Lord's Supper. And Jesus walks among the lampstands of his local churches. Revelation 2 and 3, doesn't he? He's not walking among the lampstands of the church universal there. He's walking among the lampstand of Ephesus and Sardis and Smyrna, those visible churches. Now, I understand that these local churches often fail to do their job well. They often fail to do their job well. Every church under heaven is subject to a mixture of error. Though the men who signed the Bakersfield Statement all have some disagreements on secondary and tertiary issues of doctrine. We've been told we're causing division. Yet, a Baptist, a Presbyterian, and an independent Bible church guy walked into a room together. <laughs> These disagreements show up in a number of ways in our respective ministries. They do. We have disagreements. They show up. But we're all united on the most important doctrines, the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of Christ's person and work, the doctrine of the person and work of the Holy Spirit and applying Christ to us, the nature and offices of the church, the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead, the resurrection of the body, etc. That's a lot. We're united on those doctrines shared by all historic Protestants. And we're united with our Protestant forebears in the conviction that when the church is failing in her job, we put our effort into strengthening and reforming the church, not into starting parachurch ministries to do her job for her. So Christ's church is the who that is responsible to make disciples. Now let's briefly consider the how. Second point, how are we commanded to make disciples? What are the biblically given means to that end? Look again at Matthew 28. Matthew 28. We'll look at verse 19. I told you about these three participles. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. I just want to stop there. I told you already that make disciples is the primary command here. That's clear in the grammar. 
And there are three participles, go, baptize, and teach. Go is a participle. Now, if I want to be really technical grammatically, and you can just, if you're not a nerd and you don't like this, uh, it's too bad. You're going to get subjected to it right now. Go is a participle that attends the circumstance of the main verb. In other words, it's called a participle of attendant circumstance. I was the guy who geeked out in Greek class, right? So here we are. It's a participle of attendant circumstance. That means that the circumstance of the main verb is a command. Therefore, the participle, go, takes on the nature of the main verb. So it's go and make disciples. To make disciples among the nation, you must go to them. That's part of the command. You understand how that would work? You can't make disciples of nations to whom you do not go. To make disciples of nations, you must go. Now, baptize and teach are both participles of means. They're participles of means. In other words, they're how you do the making of disciples. When you go to the nations to make disciples, here are the means God has given for doing that. So there are two means. Baptizing them and teaching them. So let's look at that. First means is given, given is to baptize. First, you're to baptize them into the name. Notice the singular, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is speaking to our triune God. In other words, you're proclaiming the gospel of grace in Christ and you're baptizing those who believe into Christ's church. We see this pattern again and again in Acts. The apostles preached the gospel of Jesus Christ as we see first with Peter at Pentecost, many in the crowd respond in faith, and then we hear this. So those who received his word, Acts 2.41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. We are then told that those newly baptized believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or doctrine, the fellowship, the prayers, etc., In other words, they were in a visible local church with recognized teachers, namely the apostles. When Jesus commands us to make disciples by baptizing them into the name of the triune God, he is teaching us something simple. This baptism is where you receive the family name. You're born with a name, and at your baptism, you're given a new name. You are no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. You now belong to Jesus Christ. And with the receipt of the family name, you're part of the household of God, the church. You're set apart from and distinct from the world of unbelievers out there. So now let's consider the second means Christ gave his church of making disciples. Teaching them to obey, notice verse 20, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. This is done by the church as well. That's precisely why the new believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Christ gave pastors and teachers to the church for this end. Again, go back to Ephesians 4.11, and we're going to move through some passages relatively quickly to make this point. Ephesians 4.11, certainly not going to move through all of them, but some. Notice what it says. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now note verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I actually have grammatical problems with my own translation I'm reading here. I actually think it's to perfect the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry. But I'm not going to get in a fight with the modern versions of English, in English right now. Here's the point. 
These guys are, in some way, teaching the saints, aren't they? Now what it goes on to say, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That, that's, that's not unity in our expressional, you know, our kind of emotional attachment to the faith. That's not unity in sentimentality with regard to Jesus, that we all get together and cry when Jesus' name is mentioned. That's not what it's talking about. Unity of the faith, that's objective. That's unity in the doctrinal confession, the apostles' doctrine that we all hold. They we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Note what he's saying here. Christ gave pastors and teachers to the church to teach you, to teach us, so that we all grow in maturity, so we're not children any longer, so we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They're a gift from Christ. So when a man minimizes the importance of Christ's gift, understand he's insulting the giver of that gift. He gave that for our good. You say, oh, that's, you're, you're commending yourself pretty heavily, Chad, as a pastor. Brothers and sisters, I sit under the preached word all the time myself and learn. I look forward. I brought my journal so I can write notes today when these two men teach me that I'm a sheep before I'm a shepherd. And I have to always remember that. 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4. Verse 16 is Paul's instructing Timothy. Verse 16. There's I could read this whole chapter, to be honest with you, but I'm just going to pick verse 16 as his conclusion. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Now, here's a minister of the word, Timothy, appointing elders and deacons and teaching the church. He's to keep a close watch on himself and on the teaching or the doctrine. That's all the word doctrine means, the teaching. We don't do doctrine here. Oh, uh-oh. On yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do you hear how high the stakes are? You don't keep a close watch on your own life and on the teaching. You see how high the stakes are? Persist in this, for by doing so, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. There's, there's a lot more to say about this text than I have time for. 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. Verse 1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Here's Paul teaching Timothy, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. Notice this, what Paul has taught, the doctrine, the good deposit that God has given to him, chapter 1, the form of sound words, that's called doctrine, that Paul has given to Timothy, he is to now entrust that doctrine to faithful men who will be able to do what? Teach others also. Entrust that to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. Just after Paul tells Timothy 
um, that he knows how he was saved. He was saved by his mother and grandmother actually teaching him the scriptures, in that case would be the Old Testament, um, which leads you to a knowledge of salvation in Christ. I won't get into all the implications there. It goes on to say this. All scripture is breathed out by God. Pasa grafe theoponustos. Right? That all scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed, goes on to say, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In other words, you want to mature? You need to be taught the scriptures. Because God breathed them out. Christ is the head of the church, the word of God. And what does um, the spirit, why this word breath? What does, um, how, do, how is word carried, a word carried? If you speak and you put your hand in front of your mouth and you speak, you're going to feel your breath because your word is carried by your breath. And that's the analogy going on here. Christ, the word of God, speaks to you by the breath of God, by the Holy Spirit. And that doctrine's carried into your heart. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I don't believe that the word of Christ there means the word about Christ, but literally the word that Christ speaks. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians 2.17 that you heard the gospel from Christ as he came and preached it to you Gentiles. Now, when did Jesus go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles in Ephesus? Never. That we read in the gospel records. So what's he talking about? When Paul preached the gospel, Christ, by a spirit, preached through him into their hearts. So if I stand up here and teach, my words will fall to the ground. They have nothing to offer you. But inasmuch as Christ, by his spirit, is teaching his word truthfully, the spirit carries that into your heart. Goes on, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, the man of God there, by the way, is the minister, not just every member. I charge you, chapter 4, in the presence of God, it's because the scripture is the God-breathed word that brings you to maturity that I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Titus 1.9. It's already referenced. The elder, Titus 1.9, Paul speaking of the elders, The elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. You guys notice all this language about the Bible being taught to people? (laughs) Holding firm to it. The elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That means healthy doctrine. Sound is like the the language of when a bone is broken and it gets reset so that it's put in the right setting so that it heals soundly. So it's sound doctrine. So if you have unsound doctrine, you understand it's not going to lead to healing, but to more sickness. So he says, sound doctrine also to rebuke those 
who contradict it. Pastors often love the first part of the, this verse and loathe the second part. Nobody likes the rebuking of those who contradict sound doctrine. It doesn't make you popular. In America, you can affirm things all day long, and it's amazing. Just don't deny anything. Now you're in trouble. It, it, the, Paul doesn't just tell these elders there to deny things. Look at what it says. Verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They were adding to the gospel. Mark is going to deal with that. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. We're supposed to silence them. I was asked by one of the men, are you going to give us um, a chance to address um, our doctrine? And I said, um, well, the elders at Grace Bible who are in charge of this conference have not offered that to you, so I certainly can't. And by the way, our job as elders is to silence false teachers, not give a microphone to them. Titus 2.1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. I don't really know how we can get away from this. Hebrews 5, I'll end there. Hebrews 5, we'll wrap it up as far as our biblical texts. Hebrews 5 and verse 11. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain. Now, now why? I, you'll have to indulge me. I think Paul's the author of Hebrews, not popular in the modern era. Um, I preached a whole sermon on it, probably totally irrelevant to my congregation for the most part, and they sat through it anyway. But here we go. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Well, you know why it's hard to explain? Because you've become dull of hearing. Do you catch that? Sometimes doctrine is hard to explain to people because they have become dull of hearing. Now, why have they become dull of hearing? For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God or the word of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. In other words, it's hard to explain to you because you're still children, spiritually, with regard to your understanding of the word of God. You haven't grown up. He goes on, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You know what? The minister of the word does, especially for those who have ears to hear, is he trains their powers of discernment. Stands up and teaches them the word of God so they can discern good from evil, truth from error, right from wrong, the word of God from the folly of men. This is how people grow into maturity. They are taught the Bible and called upon to believe and obey what it says. Now, the influencers have a distinct means of discipleship. Their means is expressly not a Bible study. They say that. This is not a Bible study. The Leader's Guide. You can go read it. Now, they do read biblical passages, but the guide is not to teach the Bible. Rather, the participants are, quote, in a process of self-discovery. Whenever someone's in a process of self-discovery, they're in trouble. We, we won't get into the therapeutic implications of that. Um, self-examination, good. What happens in contemporary therapeutic language of self-discovery, not good. Um, 
The journey manual states, we do not disciple. Rather, we take a person through a process of discovery and removal of hindrance that in turn, now I want you to hear this, that in turn allows the Holy Spirit to disciple them. Well, I'm sure the Holy Spirit is like, thank you so much that I'm now allowed to disciple you. They have told us again and again that this self-discovery process is for unbelievers and new believers. We've met with them. Hey, it's just, it's simple for unbelievers and it's simple for new believers. And I want to say to them, it's convoluted, which means it's the last thing you should give to unbelievers or new believers. Paul says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they then call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You cannot hear unless someone preaches, and you cannot preach or you should not preach unless you are sent. Even Paul and Barnabas are sent by the church at Antioch, aren't they? Paul saw the resurrected Lord Jesus and still doesn't go on his first missionary journey until he's sent by a local church. That's remarkable to consider. I have never seen the resurrected Lord Jesus. If I told you the opposite, you should drag me out of here into the parking lot and just beat me to death. But I have not seen the Lord Jesus. Paul did, and yet was still sent by a local church. Friends, this is why Jesus gives pastors and teachers to his church. This is why they are to be qualified, called, and ordained by the church. We see that again and again and again in the Acts of the Apostles and in the Epistles. And these ministers of the word are to feed Christ's sheep. When Jesus comes to Peter, he says to him, what? Peter, do you love me? Peter said, you know I love you, Lord. Jesus said, then teach the sheep to feed themselves. Not what he says. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? You know I love you, Lord. Then tell the sheep to tend to their own needs. Not what he says. Tend my flock. The claim of the journey to the inner chamber. Page 22 of the journey manual says this. When you still need someone to teach you God's word, when you still need someone to teach you God's word, you are unable to progress to the inner chamber. Until you are a self-feeder, you cannot progress past anemic Christianity. And that self-feeding method begins with you reading the Bible and answering the question, this means to me. Let me say two quick things. This means that for upwards of 1,600 years, the church was left in anemia because, and they could not enter the inner chamber because you know what they didn't have? A Bible in their language and the ability to read it. You'll say, well, the Bible is in Latin, and that was the, the language of the empire since Jerome's Latin Vulgate for about a thousand years. Yes, but the average German or Frenchman or Englishman didn't speak Latin, and 95 plus percent of them could not read. They were not literate, and they had no access to books. Even when Gutenberg's printing press comes around in the 16th century, The average person cannot afford a book off of that printing press. They're wildly expensive. Only the wealthy had access to them. So here's my question. 
from the time of Christ sending his spirit at Pentecost and the church going out all the way until the average person knew how to read and had a Bible in their language. 1,600 plus years, the church was unable to enter the inner chamber where Jesus is, left in spiritual anemia. Regarding your Bible and answering the question, what this means to me, that will never bring you to maturity. It will carry you to spiritual sickness and immaturity, to a kind of narcissistic reading of Scripture, where you take the Bible and use it to dive deeper and deeper into yourself. And I'm going to tell you, if you're trying to dive deeper and deeper into yourself, come speak to me, because you will never... You know, you chase that rabbit down that hole, you're never going to come out. The heart is wicked and desperately evil. Who can know it? I can't even know my own heart, so I don't want to take the Bible and keep using it as an excuse to, exa- to look so far down deep that I self-discover something. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to discover. It's really simple. I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus. Now, there are specific ways in which I sin I need to examine and find out about and repent of. But I'm not going to grow to maturity reading the Bible saying this means to me. The means that Christ has given to his church for disciple making are clear. Teaching the Bible, well, by which we mean the careful, systematic reading and explaining of the sense of the Spirit-inspired words. That's clear in Ezra. That's clear in Timothy. That is the primary means of growing in grace. Now, I want to be clear. We men are utterly committed to translating the Bible into the common language and teaching, people's how to, teaching people how to read it and meditate on it and obey it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And we're saying that good pastors and teachers in Christ's church are training you how to handle the Word of God whenever we open it and teach it. Now, there's more to say here but we have because we have more sessions coming, but saints, please hear me. Inasmuch as your ministers fail to open the Word of God and teach it to you so that you are growing in grace, you ought to press for reform in your church. As I sat with one of the leaders of the influencers and asked him why he doesn't get this teaching from his church, why do you need the influencers? One of the leaders says to me, I've been at that church my whole life, and all they fed me is crumbs. Now, that stunned me. And it told me one of the major problems here. There are churches desperately in need of reform. But friends, we can be assured of this. Christ did not provide the influencers as a fix for his broken church. The means for growing into maturity in Christ is not by reading a handful of extra-biblical books and answering what the scriptures mean to me. The means for growing in grace are those which Christ has entrusted to his church, baptizing and teaching. Let me pray. Father, we ask for your help as we continue today through these sessions. Help us understand your word. Help us love your word and live in accord with it. We pray, trusting Christ to work by his spirit among us. In Jesus' name. Amen.